I'm Helen Skelton and this is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. Now, if I asked you, how will you power and heat your home in 10 years' time? How will you run your vehicles? How do you think architects will be designing our buildings? What would your answer be? We're supposed to be using heat pumps, aren't we? Everything will be electric. Hydrogen? No idea. We'll all have solar panels, won't we? I'll just go with whatever's cheapest, to be honest. We use energy, gas and electricity every single day. I mean, just think about it. We're cooking, heating, running appliances, travelling, even when we're asleep. Right now, many of us are conscious of how much our home energy bills are costing us, particularly at this time of year. But beyond that, do you think it's possible that we take it for granted? You know, we just assume that it will be there. We turn the sockets on and things light up or charge up. I mean, it's not until you have a power cut that you really start to think, hang on a minute, things would be tricky without so much easily available energy. We've got to change our heating. Everyone's got to change their car. And we've got to do lots of other things to improve the ecosystem before 2050. In this podcast, I'm finding out about the steps we all face on the road to decarbonising the energy we use. And this time, that means the most important place of all, at home. It's one place that still presents massive challenges and not all of the emerging technologies are ready or affordable yet. A huge part of the UK's carbon footprint comes from heating our homes. And I think we all know we need to make some changes to reduce carbon emissions and fight global warming. So what is the score for the next decade, 20 years and beyond? What decisions are we going to have to make about the place we call home? Let's find out. Last time on this podcast, we heard lots about what world leaders, governments and businesses are doing to tackle climate change. But once decisions have been made, the next step is building strategies and policies that create real actions and change. And when that happens, we can start to get an idea of what that looks like in day-to-day life. A massive step on the road to net zero here in the UK finally emerged earlier this year when the government released its heat and building strategy. 37% of the UK's carbon emissions come from the heating sector. So what's the plan to tackle it? To give us some answers, I'm joined by Flea Lawton from Smart Energy GB. That's a government-backed non-profit that's helping us look after the environment with smarter homes. So let's talk boilers. Gas or oil boilers will be banned in new buildings by 2025. And from next year, 450 million in grants is being made available to help homeowners upgrade their boilers. So are gas boilers going to be phased out completely? Because there are plenty of people who have them that are working fine and working dandy. So what is the plan for them? So the plan is that new boilers won't be installed from 2035. So if you've got a gas boiler now, you just keep going until you get to the end of life of that gas boiler. And from 2035, you won't be able to install a new one. That's the plan anyway. And it it is really important because getting to net zero means getting rid of fossil fuel burning boilers. And I don't know whether people realise sort of how much our homes and heating our homes contributes to the CO2 emissions. You know, it's about 17% of CO2 emissions in the UK. And that's a lot. So we need to move towards heating our homes, uh, powering our homes in a way that isn't contributing that CO2. 
But you can understand how for some people this will be quite alarming news because they'll be sitting there, particularly at the minute, it's freezing. They're hearing all this talk about the energy costs going up. What do people need to do in the short term, in the next few months, the next year, for instance? Well, I mean, the next few months, there is no rush to do any of this. This is a real gradual change to our heating system. So if your boiler breaks down now, you can still buy a new gas boiler if that's what you want to do. But if you do want to look at more low carbon technologies, there are solutions out there now that you can look at. So, for example, things like heat pumps and heat networks. So it's important for people to to have a look around and to see what's there, to see what suits their homes. But what's really important is getting the energy efficiency of your home up to speed as well, because that's really important with new heating technologies. It's important with our current gas boilers. You know, we can be saving on CO2 emissions purely by getting draft excluders, by, you know, sorting out your house, looking at insulation, looking at loft insulation, things like that. It keeps your house warmer anyway. So there are things we can do to reduce our emissions before we think about replacing that boiler. But just in terms of replacing that boiler, as you say, if yours does break down this winter and you you need to do something else. What is the government suggesting or encouraging us to do? There isn't anything at the minute. I mean, what they're looking at are these low carbon technologies, but they are still new. From April next year, there'll be grants available for people to support them to get these new technologies in. So heat pumps, they're really, really keen on heat pumps. And heat pumps basically draw either air or ground sort of heat into the home and heat the home that way. It's a different a different way of heating. It uses electricity to, to draw that in and it doesn't use sort of gas or oil. So it doesn't use those those fossil fuels directly. Although, of course, electricity at the minute still uses some fossil fuels to, to generate. So they're not completely CO2 negative. Who will qualify for one of these grants? Because 450 million sounds like a lot, but if you're going to divvy that up over the country... Yeah, absolutely. It's not a lot of money for many people. No, it isn't. And they're looking at, I think it's uh, about £5,000 towards air source heat pumps and £6,000 towards ground source heat pumps. Those are the grants available. Now, the plan is that as these technologies become more widespread in the market, that we see more coming forward, that their price actually drops. So there's less need for those grants. The plan is with the grants is that it brings the cost of the heat pump down to about the cost of a new boiler. Aside from homes, what about offices, schools, industries? Are these changes going to have to be implemented there as well? I mean, everywhere is going to have to look at new technologies. I think there's about 1.7 million non-domestic settings. So that's, as you say, schools, hospitals, um, you know, businesses, things like that across the UK. And they're generating about a third of our emissions as well. So they absolutely need to look at this. There's a, a big job to do within the industry around thinking about actually who's going to fit these, how are they fitting them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's around getting us up to speed as a country to do that as well. But there is a a will for things to change and I feel like mood and kind of perceptions are changing. Talk me through the driving factors to get in the UK on green and clean energy. We need to change our behaviours. That is becoming more and more obvious. And we've seen that over the last few years in terms of people's thinking about the environment, their understanding about the environment and the appreciation that we all have to play a part in that. I think innovation has got a lot to do this as well. We need to see products on the market that people want to get. You know, we, we want to, you need to see sort of the best products being actually those that are green, that are sort of saving you energy and saving you money, essentially. 
What would you say to reassure people who will be lost in a sea of headlines that, oh my goodness, your energy bills are going to triple and you won't be able to afford to heat your home? Because those headlines are being banded around and people are concerned. Smart Energy GB, you get lumped with these difficult questions all the time. What would you say to reassure people? For me, the most important thing is understanding your energy usage. So with a smart meter, you can see your energy usage on the screen that they give you in your home. And understanding that is really important. And that is the first step to you being able to actually make changes. More than anything, speak to your energy supplier, speak to people like Citizens Advice uh, or NEA who can help you with things like this as well. Because there are, you know, there are grants, there are funds out there to support people. And I think it's important that people make the most of that. Maybe I'm making a sweeping statement here, but it feels a bit like grand designs, doesn't it? You know, if you're building that kind of one-off bespoke smart house, you have all of the technologies, but we're not necessarily yet seeing that across the board, are we? That's right. I mean, there are projects, there are, um, I'm based in South Wales and there are projects in South Wales that are looking at affordable energy positive homes. Give us some more examples. In the short term, there are things that people can do to make their homes greener and therefore more efficient and potentially cheaper to run. One of those things is getting a smart meter, but other things would include... So simple things like thinking about insulation, thinking about draft proofing, which is, you know, a really simple thing to do. Thinking about your heat, your lighting in your home as well. Smart appliances is the other thing as well. So what we've seen again with the smart meter rollout is because people understand their energy use, they then understand the energy efficiency ratings on appliances and things like that and actually make a conscious decision to look at more energy efficient appliances. And all of those things add up. Thinking about actually when you're using your energy. So with a smart meter, again, there are tariffs available that can help you to be using energy off peak time. So you're not buying the most expensive energy. Thank you, Flea. There are still quite a few options on the table, so I wanted to spend the rest of this episode hearing about how they work and how effective they are in different kinds of homes. We have some really gorgeous but historic housing here in the UK and some really modern buildings too. So how do we make sure our beautiful old buildings are just as comfortable as the new ones? Well, insulation and double glazing are the obvious first port of call before you look at your boiler. But depending on who you ask, the next step can have a load of different answers. Is your future heated with electricity, hydrogen, heat pump tech, or maybe even something else? Even if you're sold on making our world a greener, safer place, finding the most affordable and the comfortable option is a high priority for each and every one of us. The government strategy seems to suggest heat pumps are the most viable option for many, but is it necessarily the right solution for you and your home? Let's bust some myths and get to the facts. I'm joined by Adam Chapman, the director of HeatGeek. First off, HeatGeek, what is it? Tell me about it. When I got into heating 18 years ago, odd, what I found was a distinct lack of information available. Uh, if you want to learn about renewables, uh, study sort of system design. And I went as far as you could in college doing system design and started to build this resource, my own resource on like a note system on my phone. And then eventually I put that on a website, which is called Heat Geek. And then the YouTube channel was spawned. And now we do online system design training. So we, we train engineers or retrofit assessors or anyone in, interested in heating, there's lack of information everywhere. But my main focus was on how to improve system design to make the maximum efficiency from a system. 
you could just decide you want a boiler and pick the best boiler. But the, the decision process starts way further back than that. You need to look at what your main aims are. Is it carbon or saving total electricity bills or gas bills or whatever? Then you look at your heat source relative to your property and your lifestyle. To be fair, though, it's difficult for people, isn't it? Because if you buy a house or you're going to renovate a house, which lots of people do... Yeah. We live in the UK. Everybody needs heating. Mm. You, you know, you, you hire a plumber to come along and you trust what they say or a heating engineer. And if you, you know, I, I don't have a clue. I've had loads, bought loads yeah. of boilers over the years. And I, I feel like you almost feel thick because you, you don't want to go, actually, I don't understand this at all. Yeah, it is. It's very much a relationship with your heating engineer that you have to trust in. The variance in heating engineers is huge. So I think the best kind of advice there would be really to hammer in on your research on the engineer, look at their reviews, look for questions you can ask them online and just test their knowledge. So do some research before you engage a heating engineer to design a heating system. Yeah. Let's talk about heat pumps because they're one of many things that people are talking about, particularly when we look into the future and heating our homes. What is a heat pump in its simplest form? A heat pump is something that takes thermal energy from any source and puts it into your home or your hot water. Now, that source could be the air, the ground or water. It just has to be above minus 273 degrees. That's the important part. You might uh, extract heat out of the air outside and pump that into your house, uh, just the way the fridge works, or suck it out the ground. Or you can have water source, so you can use a, a river or um, a, a large lake to extract heat energy out of there. Do they work everywhere? Theoretically, yes. So they, they, they will work. In, in practice, any... though, Adam, in practice. Yeah. The only limit is budget. A heat pump installation isn't just the installation, as I was saying, of a heat pump outside. It's part of a system. So you also have to be looking at insulation. You have to be looking at radiators, potentially underfloor. In theory, I could make a heat pump heat my shed outside, which has got no insulation. But the barrier, the main barrier in the UK is budget. And the more system upgrade you do, or insulation upgrade, the more efficiently it will run. So it sounds like a heat pump is a better idea for a new build, for instance, where you're having to put a system in anyway, rather than converting every bit of a Victorian house, for instance? It's only a better idea because you're already putting radiators. You're already running pipework. There's no extra. When you're transforming or doing a retrofit from an old type of house, you're having to take out pipework that was feeding into the kitchen where your boiler was and run it outside, change these radiators that were put in. I mean, having said that, the radiators might be old and need changing anyway. Uh, you might have to upgrade the pipe size. But yeah, generally speaking, new, new build is, is a no-brainer. Because when we're talking about budget, though, we're not talking about a few thousand pounds, are we? Because when I looked into this for no. my house, yeah. the quote was £45,000. And yeah, yeah. it's a lot of years of heating bills before this makes financial sense for people, isn't it? To totally, absolutely. Yeah, we're not talking it's going to cost 10% extra, 20% extra. The range is from 500 quid extra in a new build. And then if we're talking retrofit, I'd say the average heat pump install is for a retrofit is between 11 and 17k, somewhere in there. And that'd be an air source. A ground source would be somewhere between 24 to 32 or something like that. This does mean it's not viable in many situations in the UK. But the reason it's not viable isn't because of the technology, it's because of the budget. The, the average uh, income in the UK, uh, household income is 29 grand. That's not individual, that's household. Would you say look into it anyway before you rule it out because you don't know what the budget is going to be? 
it doesn't cost you anything to look into these things. Mm -hmm. Heat pump technology is on a vast increase, like electric cars. Although we were saying that five years ago, don't bother on these old 1920s houses. I'm not going to plug the heat pump we have outside, but if you follow the channel, you'll see which one it is. That can run at quite high temperatures at very high efficiencies and can heat old Victorian houses with cavity insulation, no problem at all, with current radiators. I'd say if you had single glazing, you would look at a boiler then, but you probably want to upgrade to single glazing anyway because you're literally pouring heat outside. Uh, and then you've got to make a decision. Can I afford to upgrade my, my single glazing and afford a, a heat pump upgrade? So this is where it becomes, it's all budget, you know. But it sounds like it's a bit of a jigsaw. Like don't rule out mm. a heat pump if you live in an old house, if you're replacing the radiators and the windows anyway, or maybe you have an old house with double glazing, there are still options for you to look at. Absolutely, yeah. So our, our catchphrase is there's no panacea. Every single, every household's different. You have to look at your situation. As you say, uh, pieces of a jigsaw, line it all up and then weigh out the options. Once you get the heat pump in, though, are your bills going to come down and is your house going to be hot enough? So um, it depends how it's designed. When you hear these horror stories of my house isn't warm enough and the electrical costs are too high, there's a couple of things that could be wrong there, both point to the installer and or communication with the customer. So when you do a heat pump installation, you're supposed to, and this is part of the MCS regulations, is show the system design temperature you've calculated for and show all your calculations for your radiator sizing, which gives you your flow temperature. Of your flow temperature, you can work out your system COP, which is how efficient your heat pump is. And then from there, you can work out, right, this is going to cost me X a year versus X a year staying on gas. And then what you can do is you can say to the customer, right, now, if you upgrade your radiators this much, your costs are going to come down to here. Or if you just leave them where they are, your costs are going to be here. You choose what you want to do. All the horror stories, however, no one's heard of this conversation, which is nuts, because this should be on every single install. And that's down to the, either the engineer not communicating what they're doing or just giving them the cheapest quote, or their, their customer picking the cheapest quote and not asking why is this system looking different and cheaper versus this one from another source? I'll just go for the cheaper one. Where is the best place to find out solid information about the heat pumps? Uh, our channel. So we've got heatgeek.com. It's very good. Or, or the YouTube channel. Brilliant. Thank you, Adam. I think from that, we can all agree that yes, heat pumps are an option for some people in some places, but it's not one size fits all. I'm going to be finding out about a couple of other heating and energy options later in this episode. But first, let's take a moment to think about what we might need from our homes in the future. The NHBC Foundation published a report called Futurology. As a research body, they provide all the analysis to help building companies make homes for this century. Catherine Kerr went along to find out more. Thanks, Helen. I'm joined now by Richard Smith, Head of Standards Innovation and Research at NHBC. Richard, the Futurology Report is looking at the future of building, of homes, of workplaces and really of kind of cities and urban environments as well, right? What kind of trends and shifts caused you to look ahead towards that? What's changing? It's basically because we are seeing that uh, the demands for housing are changing and you know, in particular homeworking, different lifestyles of living, people living longer, people buying their first property at an older age and, and individuals living more singularly as well. So they're, they're the reason. So a, a typical family house and the use of a typical family house has, has changed. And the research publication has gone further to suggest what further changes could happen based on how things will pan out in the future. But obviously, 
a lot has happened in two years, which has probably pushed some of those things through more quickly. Are we looking at more people living in flats? Are we looking at bigger houses or kind of mixed homes? Well, there's always a, a demand to provide a higher volume of, of housing on, on land. So it's, it's looking at different properties, and not necessarily in size, but their use and their performance. So, for example, with a single occupancy home, making sure that a single occupancy home is suitable for a home worker as well. So a, a, a workspace. Adaptability, making sure that a new home is adaptable for the future. So an occupant or a homeowner could you know, adapt the home based on their needs at any particular time. And in addition to that, really, some of the technologies as well, making sure that technology is there to, to support home, home occupiers. We're talking in December and it's pretty cold outside and all the people I can imagine that since COVID have now decided to work at home more, I suppose they're looking at completely different energy bills than they were maybe two years ago if they're now home-based and they've got the heating on all day, for example. Well, I think with a, with a modern home, especially with a, a home of the future with heat pumps, a low demand heating system with a high energy efficiency dwelling, we should see fuel bills be quite comparable, really, on, on the basis that there's a steady state of temperature throughout the day. But also, you've got to consider internal gains as well. So if you've got a computer running, if, if you've got good glazing, you've got good orientation, and you've got a, a good fabric in your property, then in effect, then you should be able to manage the, the temperature in your home quite well in a, in a modern dwelling and, and certainly more going forward in a future dwelling. I suppose all of this adds up to looking at really different energy needs in the future, all those trends and population changes you mentioned. How does that look for the kind of the energy we're using in the future, say all the way to 2050 when we've, we've hopefully met our net zero goals? The infrastructure for electricity supply is, is changing substantially to be a much more green and non-fossil fuel reliant infrastructure. So it's, in my view, it's inevitable that energy costs may increase, but it's a much cleaner energy. I think the main objective with new dwellings going forward is to ensure that the, the energy demand within the dwelling is kept low. How do you do that? Well, basically, well, a number of things. If you provide the right fabric and performance of fabric, or thermal envelope to reduce energy demand. That, that's that's the, by far going to be the most important. Then there's other technology. So there's battery storage, there's solar PV, and those kind of renewables that you can actually produce your own electricity and store it and use it when when the sun isn't shining, such as in the evening. And that links very, very well to car charging. So uh, put all the technologies together, uh, you, you, should, you should actually be able to have a very low energy demand building by using the technology and, and having a good fabric in the property. So in 20 years time, will our, the homes we're building and looking to buy all have solar panels and electric car charging stations and battery powers and, and this ability you mentioned to kind of gather energy and send it back to the grid? Will that be a reality for most people? Well, I think actually a number of those technologies are already happening in, in new dwellings. And from next year, we will see a significant increase of solar PV to start off with. Uh, and it's likely that electric vehicle charging points in new dwellings will be in place next year as well, by all accounts. I think from 2025, to keep that energy demand down, it's very likely that all new dwellings really would have to have some form of renewable, such as a such as PV. By PV, do you mean photovoltaic? Yeah. So I, I see solar panels as for hot water, but PV is, is, is to generate electricity. So yes, we'll call them solar panels, yeah. 
So obviously you're coming up with ideas for builders, architects, developers um, who are, you know, actually putting some of these into action in designs today and in the future. But how do you see kind of consumers making decisions? I think moving forward, because there's going to be such a drive towards zero carbon, there will be, I think, more incentives or drivers to improve the energy efficiency, including, you know, generating your own electricity. I think the government have to do that to achieve their 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 targets for, for zero carbon by 2050. Yeah, so we need some really clear policies and schemes. Absolutely. Got you. Technology, it, it will become more affordable as time goes on, I think. Mm. The, the one thing that will always be important is, is affordability and especially affordability of heating bills. And, and, and we know that heating bills are, are going up at the moment due to wholesale supply, basically, especially of, main, of, of gas. So that may drive changes faster. And also, it's fair to say that the cleaning of, of the grid, of the national grid, has exceeded expectations, as in it's gone, gone better and quicker than most expected. So what that means is, is that our energy is, is cleaner, quicker, which means that we can incorporate more heat pumps into new dwellings and into buildings faster. The, the one thing I would err on caution on is making sure that we don't go too quick, that the technology doesn't keep up with us. And we end up then with uh, issues with, with all dwellings where heat pumps aren't heating dwellings effectively enough, etc. And the installers making sure we've got the right competency of those individuals to install. I mean, the last thing you want, I suppose, is to buy something thinking you're doing something great for the environment and the world and for your home and budget, only to find it doesn't work. Well, that is the main driver for some of the major builders carrying out trials at this stage. Mm. Uh, they don't want people to buy their first home and, and feel cold. Or, or have extortionate heating bills. What we would like to see is a, is a good, effective implementation of, of new standards going forward and homeowners to be completely satisfied with the, the performance of their dwelling. Now, if you think about how much homes have evolved and changed in recent years, I suspect I'm not the only one who's excited to see what the future holds. What will our houses look like in another 20, 30, even 40 years' time? It definitely sounds like designers are taking a very interconnected look at the changing needs of our homes and the demands of families, the expectations of communities. Some really interesting predictions about how social aspects will influence that, as well as climate change. Right, let's hear a bit more about where we are on some of the other technologies that we've mentioned. Let's speak to Jinmi McCauley, National Grid's Public Affairs and Policy Manager, to hear what the public make of the different options on the market and how realistic they really are. Thank you for your time there, Jimny. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Now, you've carried out research into the general public's opinions on the future of heat. What are people saying? Our research showed that consumers are very unaware that how we heat our homes now will need to change for the UK to meet its net zero target. And consumers also felt that these alternatives were rarely advertised and what they wanted to see was awareness raising material distributed to enable them make informed decisions. They also made it quite clear that high upfront costs need to be addressed and they're willing to make trade-offs between the different heating alternatives depending on their specific need but they were very clear 
that they weren't willing to compromise on being warm and comfortable in their homes. That was a non-negotiable. They had to maintain the existing level of warmth and comfort that the current system provides. They weren't willing to negotiate on that at all. Um, for me, the research drove home the point that success really depends on getting consumers engaged and actively participating in the heat transition. Public engagement and a strong consumer proposition are really, really important. And that's the thing, because it's such an emotive subject, we're talking about the planet, but we're also talking about people heating their homes in... I mean, think about how cold it is at the minute. Presumably, you came across some quite emotional people. I did. I think it's it's the level of disruption people talk about. You know, you hear things where, well, will I still be warm and comfortable in my home? Obviously, you hear about energy, uh, the costs as well. And well, it's, it's, it's expensive. I can't afford it. <laughs> and when we talked about ground source heat pumps, for example, and, and we explained what that was, we're like, well, am I going to have to dig up my garden? But And I imagine a lot of people know that moving over to clean and green energy options is need to do and nice to do. But when you talked about disruption, yes, digging up your garden is what some people might do, <laughs> you know, in order to put that system in. But there are also other disruptions like taking all your pipes out or changing your radiators and all the rest of it. There's an inevitable knock-on that some people are concerned about. Heat pumps aren't for everyone. There are other technologies. What kinds of other options are you talking to people about? That's a very good point. So in addition to heat pumps, which government would like to see more of installed. Another solution being talked about in the industry are hydrogen-ready boilers. A hydrogen-ready boiler is a gas-fired heating boiler, which is similar to what we have today, basically, and it's capable of burning either natural gas, which is what we have, or pure hydrogen. And this has the advantage of being similar to what we currently have today. It's what consumers are familiar with, and there isn't much expectation that there'll be that level of disruption. So boiler manufacturers say that they only need about an hour in your house to make a switch within a boiler for it to start running on hydrogen when we do get there. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there are few innovations going on at the moment to make hydrogen reality. And National Grid is involved, very actively involved in that. And we've got Future Grid. And that's our project, which tests how we might safely introduce up to 100% hydrogen into the national transmission system. And I think it's worth highlighting here that government has deferred its decision on hydrogen for heat till 2026, when uh, it expects to have seen the results of all the different innovation projects to make uh, an informed decision. How safe are hydrogen boilers? No network will ever introduce anything that's unsafe for consumers. That is, you know, something to see at the outset. And not forgetting that, you know, the work we're doing, we're doing with a health and safety executive. So um, take, for example, Future Grid, which I mentioned, and that's that's happening up in Spade Adam. And you've got a row of um, terraced houses, three houses where you've got hydrogen ready boilers in there, demonstrating an offline way how things would really work. So nothing And don't forget that we had town gas before and that had hydrogen as well years ago. So um, it's just that reassurance that there's nothing that will be put onto the system that wouldn't be safe for consumers at all. Just uh, just to clarify, you know, um, Spade Adam isn't a residential area. So it's uh, the RAF base up in Cumbria. And that's where this research facility has been set up. So it's not a residential area. So there's lots of testing going on. It will be safe before yes, you did anything. Absolutely. 
hydrogen boilers are one thing heat pumps are another thing what about some of the others solar panels biomass boilers for instance what are other potential options Okay, so um, heat networks, that's another option. They're also referred to as district heating. And what they are really, it's a distribution system of insulated pipes that takes heat from a central source and delivers it to a number of domestic or non-domestic buildings. So the heat source might be a facility that provides a dedicated supply to the heat network, such as um, a combined heat and power plant or heat recovered from industry and urban infrastructure, canals and rivers, or even energy from waste plants. And also works well for new build developments and campuses and for some more rural off-gas grid communities. You mentioned biomass boilers, so that's another option. And they, they're quite similar to your conventional boiler um, that we're familiar with. But instead of using gas to produce heat, what you have is they burn wood pellets to produce heat. And the average household needs around 30 kilograms of um, pellets a day. Um, So you can already start to see the downsides to this. Also, larger boilers may not be suitable in some homes due to limited space or the physical challenges of loading pellets into the boiler. It's going to be a mosaic of solutions, electricity, hydrogen, and increased energy efficiency. Transitioning over to a cleaner and a greener option is going to be expensive. You've mentioned the disruption and its new technology. So is there a risk that some people are going to be left behind? Listening to consumers, one thing that was very you know, clear message we heard was the need for a just transition, what some would call a fair transition. And they wanted reassurance that consideration and protections would be in place for the most vulnerable in society. So no one is left behind, like you've said. And just talking about the need for a just transition, I'm reminded of Declan, one of the consumers we spoke to in Hall, who is financially vulnerable. So Declan lives in a rented home that isn't connected to mains gas and uses uses electric heating. His rented home is poorly insulated. I, I did mention the need for insulation. So it's not available for him to heat the whole house, given he has direct electric heating. So what he does is he heats the rooms that he and his family use as they use them. And what's happened is the rooms that are rarely used have now developed damp, which in turn has caused disputes with his landlord. And um, for Declan, His nervousness and worry is about future energy bill rises and he doesn't want that to change, you know, when he then moves to the new energy option. So he really doesn't want that shift to cleaner energy to make his heating more expensive than it currently is. So that's why governments provided some, you know, grants and things with heat pumps, for example, to make a dent in that upfront cost. Tenants were one customer group that were singled out in discussions with consumers that we had there was a concern that landlords wouldn't act in tenants' best interests and would rather focus on what heating system has the lowest insulation and maintenance costs for them without thinking about whole life costs and tenants' energy bills. But these aren't easy issues to address and it just goes to show how important it is that we get everyone engaged so that the voices can be heard as we plan the changes to how we heat our homes in a net zero world. And there's a risk that the transition may be unsuccessful if you don't engage consumers properly. Thank you, Jinmi. Well, there are a few more possible options for how we'll heat and power our homes in the coming decades. But that's not to say there aren't other innovations taking place all of the time. And even if they're not all practical in our homes yet, who knows what inventions might yet make all of our lives easier, greener and more affordable. Before you go and mull that over, I want to check in with one more example. 
If you're not on the gas network, you might be running off oil at the moment. But biomass boilers are offering an alternative to some who want to lower their emissions and use a more sustainable fuel. Take a listen to this. My name's Jamie Kirkman. I'm the head forester and sawmill manager at Balcom Estate, West Sussex. Probably in the last 100 years, the estate woodlands have been managed by the same family and their ethos has always been very strong. We want to manage the woodlands sustainably and get the most out of them. A well-managed woodland actually locks up more carbon and is more beneficial to the environment. So Balkham Estates is about 3,000 acres of farm and forestry. Of that, there's 1,250 acres of woodland that we manage. We always plant too many trees, and it's a bit like um, carrots in a vegetable garden, and you have to thin them out. They're not discarded, we actually use that material. We supply fuel to about six wood chip boilers in, in the local vicinity, and most of that timber comes from thinnings and waste residues from our sawmill. So we're standing next to quite a big wood chipper. What we do put through is material that's up to about five or six inches that can't be used anywhere else along with the waste residues. And that converts timber into chip. And then behind us, we've, we've got a large shed which takes 600 cubic meters of wood chips. Probably one year's supply for one of our boilers. Our boilers are quite big. I, we talk about domestic. One boiler in particular services 26 homes and they use about 300 tonnes of wood a year. 12 lorry loads. At present, we service six boilers around the area. Most of these are actually quite large things and they service what's called a district heating system. So that means there's a, a heat exchanger and it transfers hot water around a system underground into different homes and the pump takes the water, heats the house, heats the hot water and returns the heat that hasn't been used back to the boiler. This means that you have quite a large system, so not ideal for, for one family home. If you're going to do this sort of thing, perhaps you need to get together with your neighbours. As we walk back up to the sawmill, we've got our firewood processor. We try only to sell logs locally within our own village area. What we don't want to be doing is driving a load of wood around the country. In the background you can probably hear a cracking and that's uh, one of the guys on a, a big digger with a spiral screw and what he's doing is putting it into some timber. It happens to be ash that we felled as a result of ash dieback and so now we're having to split this wood up for later use as wood fuel. So a wood chip boiler is um, quite a costly thing. It's also quite a large thing and, and not perfect for every domestic home. This is a heavy product which needs some managing. Sometimes it will clog up in an auger. You do have to look after it. You do have to have the right moisture content. You can't leave the lid open and let it get rained on. But there are district heating systems that could be installed for communities, schools, nursing homes, places like that that demand quite a lot of heat. Wood chip fuel is relatively cheap, coming in at only five pence per kilowatt hour. Mind you, there is a little bit of electricity required to drive the augers and, and make the boiler work. So it isn't just reliant on wood for fuel. Here we have solar panels on the roof, which actually helps with our supply for the sawmill as well. So the saw is going forward. 
passing the saw blade through the timber and then as the saw comes back to Tom it takes the first piece of slab wood off which is then transferred away ready for chipping. Plenty to consider, but of course, thinking about the way in which we use energy is the missing piece. National Grid have been working with other organisations to develop the technology and an app that lets you see when your home energy is least carbon intense and potentially the cheapest. So it means you can put the dishwasher or the washing machine on at the greenest time of day based on how clean the power in your location is. You can download the When to Plug In app on the App Store or Google Play, look it up, give it a go. It even tells you what kinds of green energy might be being used. That's it for now. I'm Helen Skelton and you've been listening to the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. I'll be back at the end of January with another episode, so see you then.